Okay, fine. What's wrong, George? It's just that God doesn't like me. There is, Louis. He doesn't like me. Really? Really. Not at all? Not at all. Yikes, that does not sound good. Tell me about it. Has he ever liked you? God? No. Well, I guess when I first became a Christian, he liked me. That's good. For a few days. That's good. <sighs> it didn't last. He found me out. Found you out? Huh? That was it? Well, he also kind of liked me for a couple of weeks last year. That sounds good. Why only kind of? Well, I almost had my act together then. What do you mean? You know, I was Bible reading, praying, trying not to do all the things I'm not supposed to. Oh, got it. It was hard work, but I think I finally worked my way up from being a disappointment to actually being tolerable in his eyes. That's something, I guess. If only I could have kept it up. But I kept messing up. Then I sunk right back down to being unlikable again. Bummer. So that's where you are now? Unlikable? Oh, it gets worse. <laughs> he not only didn't like me, but he was also really mad. Yeah, I seriously screwed up last night. Epic, Christian, fail. So where are you now? I think I'm a step up. He's actually back to not liking me again. <laughs> I've been trying to cut back on some of my sinning, which is hard to do, because sometimes I do things that I don't even realize is sin until it's too late. It sounds exhausting. I'm tired just listening to you. <sighs> I really, um, I really do want to be closer to God, but I don't know if I'll ever get him to like me again. What about you? Me? I like you. Thanks, but I mean, does God like you? God? He loves me. Loves you? How, how do you manage that? You must not screw up like I do. Oh, I screw up plenty, but I know he loves me anyway. Really? Yep. How do you know he loves you? Good question. How do you know he doesn't love you? Well, good morning. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I write our home discipleship group leaders, they're like our small group leaders, every Sunday morning. I, I send them the questions for this morning's sermon and just uh, to discuss with their groups, and I'll just send them a little note or whatever, what I'm thinking. And this morning I wrote, I know this morning I'll be grinning ear to ear. Because I knew the kids would be up here and leading us in worship, and I just can't help it. I just, I just find myself smiling and enjoying them, and uh, just so great how they're confident and they're happy, and uh, not just smiling because they're cute, but really worshiping the Lord to see that He is touching the lives of the next generations, and, and, uh, and they're learning about Jesus and how much He loves them and all that. It's just... just Wonderful. So uh, grateful, grateful for that. And uh, you know, I don't know if you were, if you happen to look at the news this morning. Not to 
flip to a totally different subject, but let me flip to a totally different subject. Uh, I read in the news this morning that our brothers and sisters, fellow Christians in Egypt, there was, I think, a bombing in a church. And, uh, uh, you know, to be a Christian in Egypt is one of the most difficult places probably on the planet to stand up for Jesus. And these people were gathering for their Palm Sunday service. And uh, I, I don't know if the numbers are different, but when I came to church, it was like 26 people were killed and like over 70 people injured. Just tragic, absolutely tragic. And it's, I was just reminded of, of how blessed we are to just be able to come and worship and the kids can come up here and feel like it's a, a safe place and it's a fun place and it's a place where we can learn and grow and and yet we're reminded that in other parts of the world it's not the same way. So uh, as we continue in worship, let's, let's pray to the Lord and we'll be sure to remember those in Egypt and other places around the world where uh, it's quite hostile against Christianity. Well, I don't know if you know the account of Palm Sunday, but uh, about a week before Jesus was going to be crucified, he uh, was coming into Jerusalem. He was sitting on a young donkey, the, the foal of a donkey or the colt of a donkey, a young donkey, and uh, his disciples had put a cloak over the donkey and he was able to sit on it and the donkey was walking into Jerusalem and everybody, the Jewish people were coming and, and they were um, laying their cloaks down in front of the donkey so it wouldn't have to touch the ground when it walked because they knew that Jesus was the king. He was the Messiah that the Bible had talked about. And, uh, and so they were singing, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were, they were honoring him as, as their Messiah, as their king. And, uh, and they were just singing and rejoicing. And, and then when they ran out of cloaks and they laid down these branches on the ground, and many scholars believe those were probably palm fronds that, that, they, that they laid down on the ground in front of him so that the donkey, so royalty wouldn't have to touch dirt. And, uh, and, and then the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, they actually came up to Jesus and they said, tell your disciples to stop, tell, tell them all to stop. And, and, uh, and Jesus said, if I tell them to stay silent, even the rocks will cry out. Remember this about Palm Sunday? Well, uh, Jesus, um, Jesus then uh, is heading into Jerusalem, and as he's going into Jerusalem, he starts to cry starts to weep, and uh, he's weeping for, well, first of all, he's weeping because he knows that all of these people who are worshiping him as the king and the Messiah, in one week's time, less than a week's time, they're going to be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. They're going to totally reject him, but he's not crying for himself. He's crying for them because they need a Messiah. They need, they need to put their faith in him, and, uh, and they, they weren't going to. He's also crying, as he indicates, and in I believe it's Luke's gospel, that he's crying for them because he knows that in about 40 years after that, the Roman Empire in AD 70 would come in and totally demolish Jerusalem. They'd totally level the temple, and thousands of them and their children at that time would end up being killed by the Roman uh, Empire. And so he's, he's crying for them. He's, he's, his heart is, is heavy for them. You know, Jesus knew that they were going to suffer, and yet he wasn't going to do anything about it. I mean, he was going to cry for them, but he wasn't going to change the course of history. He knew that they were going to go into a hard situation, that, that they were going to experience a lot of suffering, and he wasn't going to do anything about it. We can sometimes think, like, like George here was thinking, you know, uh, 
I just don't do good. I'm not doing what he wants me to do. And therefore, Jesus must get mad at me. And uh, almost this idea like Jesus coming into Jerusalem, and it's like, well, you're going to reject me? Oh, yeah? Well, I'm going to reject you. I'm not going to help you when the Romans come in and, and destroy the city. That's the right attitude to have about Jesus. Well, we're in this series entitled Metamorphosis. Actually, we're at the very end of this series. It's the last message in this series as we have gone through Romans chapter 6 through Romans chapter 8. We've talked about how God wants to bring about a transformation in our lives. He wants to mold us. He wants to shape us. He wants to mature us. He wants to bring about a metamorphosis. And this morning, we're going to see just how much the Lord really does love us even when we go through suffering. And he doesn't stop it. Even when we can't seem to do what's right. Even when we feel quite weak and confused. For the Jews back on that first Palm Sunday, or for George in the drama, or for us today, we must understand this truth. Don't ever think that God is against you. Don't ever think that you are just one step away from him truly rejecting you, like you've gone too far. God is always for us. He loves you, and he loves me. And we will know this experientially. We will know this in reality, in how we feel, in what we see. We will know this when we come to the point where we actually believe deep down in our hearts that we truly do need him that we really need him we're so strong in ourselves but we need to be able to say no i need you i need all of you god i need god the father i need god the son and i need god the holy spirit and this morning we're going to see how he helps us when we when we know that we need him So first of all, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit in our lives. We can't can't live this following after Jesus on our own. We're too weak to do it. And the way that we'll see the Holy Spirit helps us specifically is he helps us to pray. You know what prayer is, right? Prayer is this act of dependence. We we pray that we we need you, God. We, We need help. And even in our prayers, he helps us. Go with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 8 and verse 26. Romans chapter 8, verse 26, it says this, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. He prays for us. He works on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. Now, uh, this is amazing that the Spirit does this for us. And it starts by saying, in the same way, or some translations say, likewise. It connects us with what Paul was saying up until this point in this whole section. So back in Romans chapter 7, you might remember that Paul was admitting how weak he was, that that which he wants to do, he doesn't do, that which he you know, doesn't want to do, he finds himself doing it, and he, he finally cries out, you know, wretched man that I am. He, show, he, he, he announces just how weak he really is. And then when we get into chapter 8, the beginning of chapter 8, 
He basically says, he doesn't basically say it, he says it, that he needs the Holy Spirit in him, otherwise his whole life he'd be living hostile against God. When we get right before this section in, uh, in Romans chapter 8, uh, we find that even all of creation is under is suffering, and that, and that Paul says we too suffer inside of ourselves, that there is this suffering going on. And then he says, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. You see, that helps our weakness. Now, I don't know why this translation does not add the word in, helps us in our weakness, but almost every other English translation adds that word in. Now, why is that significant? Because when we read this, we can say he helps us, he helps our weakness. It's like we can say, oh yeah, I got a little weakness over here in my life, and I know he helps me in that little weakness over there. Or I've got this weakness over here in my life, you know, something that I just can't seem to get over, like I've got an addiction, or I've got a, I've got a way that I think, or I've got, you know, I, I, I just have a weakness here, and, and I know he helps me over here. But when we add the word in, it really makes it about all of us. He helps us in our weakness. In other words, in all of our, in who we are. If we are going to allow God to bring about a transformation in our lives, if we're going to truly allow him to bring a metamorphosis, then we must admit that we are weak. That we're weak. You know, um, when we admit that we're weak, that is when we truly will reach out for him to help. In our weaknesses, he helps us, even when we don't know how to pray. Notice what it says again in the middle of verse 26. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. You ever have that when you pray? You ever have that where you're, you start to pray and then you kind of like hit a wall? Like, I'm not quite sure how I'm supposed to pray. Or even in an intense time when you're, boy, I don't know, it's confusing, you know, there's a lot going on here, I'm not quite sure how to pray. Or, or, or just in our daily prayers or whenever we pray, you ever kind of run into a wall? It's amazing here that it says that, a, that when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit intercedes, He prays for us. And it's true that we must rely on Him. There, there's, a, there's a saying that I just need to clar clarify that is absolutely not true. It is not biblical, and therefore it's not true. And that is the saying, God helps those who help themselves. You ever hear that? God helps those who help themselves. Uh-uh. No, no, that's not true, actually. What's more true is God helps those who lean on him. God helps those who actually rely on him. God helps those who depend on him. God helps those who pray. But that's not even the most true. The most true would say, God helps those who rely on him, who lean on him, who depend on him, even when we don't know how to pray. Even when we're confused on how to pray, he is there interceding for us, interacting with God the Father on our behalf. And notice how he does it at the end of verse 26, with groanings too deep for words. Groanings. What a wonderful descriptive word. That word was used actually up above in verse 22 when all of creation groans, or we in verse 23, all of us groan inside of ourselves. It's the same word here for, used for the Holy Spirit. And it's not a groaning that comes out of our mouths. Some people believe this groaning is speaking about something that, you know, that, that comes out of our mouths. This isn't about coming out of our mouth. 
This is the Holy Spirit groaning before God the Father on our behalf. Why would he groan? Because the Spirit of God aches for you and me. The Spirit of God cares for you and me. The Spirit of God has such an, an incredible love for you and me that he interacts with God the Father on our behalf. He interacts with him in a perfect way. Look at what it says in verse 27. And he, God the Father, who searches the hearts, that would be our hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he, the Holy Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. There's this perfect interaction where the Spirit intercedes for us. The Spirit prays for us. You ever hear the expression, on a wing and a prayer? Oh, you know, whoo, I'll tell you what, they made it on a wing and a prayer. That's an old saying. It goes all the way back to World War II. I was doing a little digging on where that phrase came from. And actually, it goes back to, the best accounts have it, where it goes back to this bomber pilot named Hugh G. Ashcroft, Jr. Hugh G. Ashcroft, Jr. was a, a bomber pilot on a B-17 flying fortress. He was flying over Germany doing a bombing raid, and he got shot at. He got totally shot up, actually. I mean, like holes through the whole plane. The whole front end was smashed out by, by anti-aircraft gunfire, and I, I don't know if there were planes in the air that were shooting at him, but totally shot up, and his plane was limping in. His engines were down. And, uh, and, and he, he radios in, he says, Those who want to, please pray. Those who want to, please pray. And they're like praying, they know who the Huey is, and they see this plane coming in. And someone said something to the effect of, it's like he's coming in on a wing and a prayer. And it's stuck. A wing and a prayer, coming in on a wing and a prayer. And actually... Back during World War II, that phrase got kind of picked up, and then all of a sudden they wrote this song, and the late, great Bing Crosby actually sang the song, Coming in on a wing and a prayer. Actually, don't let me sing it. Let's listen to Bing sing it, shall we? Listen to this. And seated in the co-pilot seat, the favorite of servicemen everywhere, Bing Crosby. Coming in on a wing and a prayer. That's catchy, I know. Coming in on a wing and a prayer. Though there's one motor gone, we can still carry on. Coming in on a wing and a prayer. You can sing along. What a show. What a fire. Yes, we really hit our target for tonight how we sing and okay, no, we live no, no. through the air you know I, I was doing the research i come up with that song and i'm like ah, can't stop singing it now coming in on a wing and a prayer there's a line in there that says with our full crew aboard and our trust in the lord coming in on a wing and a prayer you know that's a description of limping along you know We've been shot at. We've been under attack. We've, we barely can make it, but we're coming in. We're, we only really have like one wing working for us, but we're coming in on a wing and a prayer. And sometimes in life, we can feel battered, you know? We can feel like we've been in the battle. We can feel like it's, it's you know, life is tough. We can realize just how absolutely weak we really are. And we can say, well, 
my life, I'm really kind of going along on a wing and a prayer. But it's not just a prayer that I'm giving for myself. It's not just a prayer that, you know, I would ask you to pray kind of a thing and other people are praying for us. Get this reality. The Holy Spirit prays for you and me. Now, just hold, hold on a second. Before we just let that just kind of go. The Holy Spirit of God intercedes, prays for you and for me. You know why? Because he loves us. Because he loves you. And he loves me. And we need him, don't we? We need the Holy Spirit. We also need God the Father. God the Father, we need him to set our path. We need him to set our path. That we don't set our own path, but we realize God is setting a path for us. Notice the next verse, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's a pretty famous verse for many of us. Many of us have quoted that to others. When somebody, when, when do we normally use this verse or hear this verse? Normally when someone's going through a rough patch, right? Normally when, when life seems to be, be a bit confusing, then we'll hear that, that prayer. Well, you know, God works together for good for those works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Or, or we just say the first part, well, you know, God works together, works all things together for good. And when we say that, I think what we're trying to say is, you know, it may not be going really well for you right now, but God will smooth it out. God will smooth it out. Just hang in there. But when, he said, when it says God works all things together for good, what's the good? What is, it, what is that good that he's working toward? Well, we see it here in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, which means he knew beforehand. Matter of fact, he knew from eternity past. He also predestined, meaning he determined beforehand, or he determined from eternity past, to become conformed to the image of his son. That's the good that he conforms us. He's conforming us to the image of his son. He's bringing about a metamorphosis so that he, Jesus, the son, would be the firstborn among many brethren. That would be you and me. Jesus is the firstborn among us. He's the one that's the plumb line. He's the, the mark, you know. He's, he's the example. I was talking to uh, Vance Higdon. He's a member of our church, long-standing member, and he is actually a track coach for Lincoln High School, and uh, I, I asked him, I said, do they ever run the steeplechase in high school? And he said, no, no, they run the steeplechase after high school. I said to him, I remember when I was in high school, I ran the steeplechase at least once. Now, I don't know if you know what the steeplechase is, but what I remember of the steeplechase is it's basically in track, you're running around the track, and then they kind of turn you off to the side, and there's this barrier that's about Eh, three, four feet tall. It's a, it's a stable barrier that you got to jump over or jump on top and jump down. And then right after it, there was this big pit that was lined with rubber and uh, it was filled with water. It was about 12 feet wide, uh, wide by about 12 inches deep. And then you're splashing through the water and then you kind of get back on the track and then you run back around and then you, you hit these obstacles again. And I, I, I thought to myself, you know, life is a lot like the steeplechase. I mean, you kind of go along in life, you know, you're just kind of cruising along in life, and then all of a sudden you hit an obstacle. 
and uh, you know, some, something that you get, seem like you got to get over, something that's sloppy that we got to go through, you know, and it's just like this obstacle that we hit, and then, then we kind of get through that obstacle, and we're feeling pretty good because now it's kind of smooth again, but then boom, we hit that another obstacle that comes our way. And honestly, here, I, I think I'd go to the bank on this one. I think the maximum time that we can go along in life without hitting an obstacle, without hitting a challenge, without hitting something that's really stressful for us, is max one month. I mean, you're, you're having a pretty good life if you can go a whole month without having to hit an obstacle of some sort. I mean, they, they just seem to come up in our lives time and time again. But we need to realize Jesus is like the one who's run it already. He's like the ultimate steeplechaser, you know? He knows the obstacles that we're facing. He understands that. And God, our Father, actually sets the obstacles in place. He's the one that says, hey, I'm bringing this into your life because I'm doing this to work together. These things, these things that you face, are there working together for your good. And you know what your good is? Your good is that I'm conforming you into the image of Christ. And then um, he goes on in verse 30, and he says this, And these whom he predestined, again, determined beforehand, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. Now, by the way, to be justified means that we are, to, we are declared righteous or right before God. That our sin, our wrong, was placed on Jesus when he died. And his righteousness, his perfection, his holiness was placed onto our account. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't look at our sin, but he looks at Christ's righteousness, and therefore we are declared right before him because of Jesus. And another word for that is being justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, he has this course set out for us, and he knows it from now unto eternity, that there is a glory to come. God has a calling on every one of our lives, and he's working all things together for our good. And he's the one that sets our path. Verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? You know what the implied answer to that is? Who cares who's against us, right? If God's for you, who cares who's against you? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. That's why we're justified, because of what Jesus did for us when he died for us. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? He sets the course. He's got Jesus who's leading us. And what we need to go through this thing, he freely gives to us. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Not God. Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah. God our Father has mapped out a course for us. And there's obstacles that he has placed in that course. And yet he ensures to us while we're hitting those obstacles. He will supply us with all things that we need. He freely gives them. Wait a minute. God has a mapped out course for our life. A calling on our life. And part of that calling are the hardships that we face, are the challenges that we face. But in the midst of it, he gives us all things that we need to get through it. He gives them to us. 
Why? Why does God care about our direction? Why does he care so much that he actually is there to help us through the hardships, through the obstacles, through the challenges? Why? Why would he do that? Because God our Father loves you. And he loves me. That's why he does it. Well, finally, we need Jesus to guide us to victory. That ultimate steeplechaser, Jesus, he wants to lead us along on this path. Verse 34, it continues by saying, Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. So he is alive right now. He can lead us because he's alive. Who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Wait a minute. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us, and Jesus intercedes for us. Seriously? You realize how much he loves us? You realize how much God loves us? He wants our very best. Verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? By the way, this list, it's not an exhaustive list, but it's a list of those things that happen outside of our control, things that happen outside of our control that just... Help us realize, hey, you know, there is suffering in our life. There is hardships that we face. And what these things reveal to us is just how vulnerable we really are, just how weak we really are. And then he quotes Psalm 44, verse 22, just as it is written, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And then the whole of Psalm 44 basically unpacks this idea that there's so many things around us that cause us to realize just how absolutely weak we are. If there's, an, if there's a description of weakness, it would be a sheep being led to the slaughter. But then he follows it up with verse 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. If there's an animal that can, be, that, that can highlight weakness and that's not conquering, it's that sheep being led to the slaughter. A sheep. <laughs> They're weak. They're not the smartest animal out there. They seem pretty insecure in and of themselves. But man, if they're following a shepherd, he'll lead them to greener pastures. Whatever we're suffering with, whatever we're going through, whatever hardships we face, whatever obstacles we have, whatever challenges we face, Jesus wants to lead us along. We're like, we can feel like sheep being led to the slaughter, like, man, this is not easy. But Jesus wants us to be conquerors. No, not just conquerors. Overwhelmingly conquer. Overwhelmingly conquer. Or to prevail completely. This is what he desires for our lives. He, de he, he desires us to understand that we can be more than conquerors, overwhelmingly conquer through him who loves us. Not on our own strength, not because we're so strong in and of ourselves, but because we're so weak to the point where we say, Lord Jesus, I need you. Can you guide me, please? So what are those things that he lays out for us to say, I want to guide your life. But I'm not going to force myself to guide your life. You've got to allow me to guide your life. You've got to actually need me to guide your life in your heart. And the way that we allow him to guide us, the path that he wants us to follow, is what we have here 
the four, four words that will help us to follow Jesus. Connect, serve, grow, go. You've heard those words before. The three girls that were up here mentioned them in the, in the announcements. Connect, serve, grow, go. You want Jesus to guide your life? We've got to make sure we're doing these things. First of all, let's talk about connect. That means connect relationally. In our mission statement, we say we have to invite people into relationship with Jesus. That's relationship. And then together, that's relationship, that's connection, become devoted followers of him. So when I was growing up, went to church every Sunday, we, I was in a big family. You remember, I, I have eight siblings, right? So I have four sisters and four brothers. I've got four that are older than me, four that are younger than me. I'm right smack dab in the middle. You've heard of being the middle child. That's me. The ultimate middle child with four older and four younger. But we would, this is what we would do every single Sunday. Our Shepherd Lutheran Church, we would come in the side door, and it was like a glass door that led outside. We'd come in that side door from the parking lot right before the church service got started, and we'd make our way down the side aisle. We'd, make, we'd fill up a whole row over on this side of the church. Every single Sunday we'd come. You know, we had our row that was reserved for us. You know what I'm trying to say. But we would sit there, and the pastor, you know, the whole service would go on, and then the pastor in the end would give the benediction at the very end of the Lutheran service, and, and as soon as, you know, um, the, the benediction was over, we would all stand up and march out that side door and out to, our, out to our car. We never connected with anybody. All my grown-up years, that was our church experience. In through the side, park it, and out as quick as we could. If someone started talking to us, like in the parking lot, I could tell my dad and mom were getting a little nervous. Like, we got to get out of here, right? I'll tell you, we did not connect relationally with the people in the church. And honestly, Jesus was not leading our family at that time. We did religion, you know, we did the practices, but we didn't let the Lord lead us. Mm -mm. If we want the Lord to lead us, we got to connect. That's why we have what we call home discipleship groups, or you might know them as small groups. And if you're not plugged in relationally with other believers, we're not supposed to live this life by ourselves. We're to help each other and encourage each other and sharpen each other. And so I want to encourage you to get involved. I want you to get plugged into an HDG, a home discipleship group. And the way you can do that, the simplest way is afterwards, go out to the welcome desk and say, Jeremy told me to get plugged into an HDG. How am I supposed to do it? And they'll take your name down. They don't even know they're doing this, but just tell them, just take my name down and here's my whatever phone number or email and I'll call you. Another way to do it, those of you who want to hop online, just hop onto our website, go to the Ministries tab, go down to Home Discipleship Groups, click on that, you'll see a map. The map just shows all these little pings uh, that you know, mark where all these different HGGs meet in Manitowoc and, and, the, and the area. Just click on one of them, the leader will pop up, just email them, say, hey, tell me about HGGs. Or call the church, it's whatever you want to do. It's important to get plugged in relationally. It's important to get connected. The second way you allow the Lord to lead your life is through serving. I'm afraid that for so many people, we come to church and we're a part of a church by basically, think, we, we leave church thinking, well, you know, that helped me, or that was good for me, or I'm glad that I listened, or, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad that I went. And that's all well and good. That's, that's not, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think our attitude oftentimes can be, well, what's in it for me? What do I get out of this? We're kind of like sponges, you know? We're absorbing. We're taking in, taking in, taking in. If we're going to be like Jesus, 
if we're going to allow him to lead us, if we're going to be his disciples, then we want to do what Jesus did. We've got to be conformed to his image. And when Jesus came, he said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And there are so many places that we can wring that sponge out. There are so many places that need help to serve, to carry out this great mission that God has us on. If you're not plugged in serving, I want to urge you to do it. And then grow. The the grow part of this pathway. Are we allowing God's word to actually challenge us, to actually change us? Are we getting below the surface that we're not just sort of allowing this to be head knowledge, but it becomes heart knowledge? Are, are, we, are we being real? Are, are we, can we point to a time? Get this. If we just take a couple minutes, can you point to a time, even in this last week, even in this la- the last seven days, where you saw God show up, where you saw Jesus kind of tweaking you a little bit, where you saw him sort of nudge you or, or prick your conscience or whatever, where you, where you felt drawn to him, where you felt like, okay, Lord, I know you're, you're still shaping me. I know you're still molding me. Have, have you had that in the last seven days? And then we need to be going. We need to be about his business. We need to be about making disciples. We need to be about going into the world and telling them about Jesus. We do need to be about that mission where we are inviting people into a relationship with him, where we are being involved in each other's lives to become devoted followers. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about a complete surrender. It's hard to surrender our lives to the Lord. And surrender is kind of like a bit of a roller coaster because we surrender and then we seem to take things back. Then we surrender and we tend to take things back. It's in times of surrender that metamorphosis takes place. It's in the times when we say, you know, Lord, no matter what my life brings me, no matter how I feel, I'm giving my life to you. I'm laying down my life before you. I'm letting you direct my path. You know what the result of that will be? We will gain confidence to understand God's love like like the Apostle Paul understood God's love for him. I love these words at the end of our section in verse 38. Listen to this. Paul says, for I am convinced, I am completely confident beyond a shadow of a doubt that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Absolutely nothing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Absolutely nothing. I don't know about you, but (laughs) I've been kind of busy lately. And I know for many of us, we say, man, man, my life is just so busy. But, you know, we have like busy and then we have like crazy busy, right? I'm in the crazy busy stage, which is not uncommon coming into Easter. That's just the nature of, you know, the business, shall we say. But I got to tell you, I have this struggle. And that is when I get really busy, I tend to rely on God less. I'm admitting that to you. Uh... Why? I think because I'm a fighter, you know. I'm independent. I'm, I'm a Midwesterner, you know. I, I can do this. But 
Honestly, when there's more on my plate, I have to rely on Jesus more rather than less. When I feel like I don't have time, I've got to pray more. The times that I do it, and the times that I don't rely on my energy and my education and, and my you know, endurance, the time I really believe that I really do need the Lord, that I can't do this on my own, but I must do it through Him who loved me, honestly, it's at those times when I'm honest and earnest and consistently relying on Him, that's when I see Him working. That's when I see Him molding. That's when I know that He is going to bring His victory for me. Not the victory that I define, but the victory that He defines for me. And I've seen it over the course of my life. I've seen Him working. And I know He loves me. Have you seen Him working in your life? Where you know he loves you. When we see God working, <laughs> when we know that even when we're praying, the Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf and he helps us in our weakness. When we know that, you know, there's things that are coming along and life can be challenging and I, I, we face challenges of so many types, but when we know, okay, Lord, I can see how you're conforming me into the image of your son. I can see how you are, you know, bringing all these things for that good, which is that conforming to Christ. When we see that, when we see victory that we say is unexplainable apart from Jesus' work in my life, when we see that, we need to realize the motivation of God for why he does these things. The motivation, it's just one motivation in God. One motivation. Love. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, absolutely, positively, unequivocally loves you and he loves me.